This episode of Science Moab was made possible by a STEM action grant from the Society for Science. This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about indigenizing higher education on the Colorado Plateau and the work being done to address climate change in tribal communities and through centering indigenous knowledge. My name is Anne-Marie Chischilly. I am the vice president at NAU for the Office of Native American Initiatives, formerly uh, the director for the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals for 10 years before I transitioned into this position, actually 11 years. So I am Diné enrolled with the Navajo Nation. So I have a special way of introducing myself according to my clan system. So for those don't quite get my Navajo, I am rich streak in the water, tobacco people, born for the bitter water people. My maternal grandparents are one who walks around and my paternal grandparents are wolf's pack. Um, I'm originally from Shanto and um, Chilchimbito, which is right in your area. You have to pass both of them to get to Moab. All of that introduction makes me the woman with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit about your journey to, to what got you to where you are now. What got you interested? And, in, you know, I know you went to law school and you've had this really... Uh, incredible path. Can you can you start about what got you interested on that path and kind of and and how you got to where you are yeah. now? I was born and raised on the Navajo Nation. I was raised in a community called Shanto and Inscription House. I went to high school in Kienta. So I was raised by a single mother, very hardworking and a very faithful, driven woman. You know, I've always had really good role models to follow from. My grandmothers raised us too for a portion of our time. So both of them were influential in their, both their ways and creating a pathway for us to be safe, for one thing, and taken care of, and also to encourage us to dream high. You know, I think education was always a focal point in my family, so all of us really worked on that um, component of our lives. I started off at the University of Arizona with an English and political science degree. I did know I, early on I wanted to go into law school and right after that, I was recruited by the Gila River Indian community to be one of their water rights attorney. For about 10 years there, I helped them negotiate and implement and get approved uh, one of the largest water settlements in the United States. Then I had a little boy. <laughs> Things change when you have kids. I really wanted to raise him within the four sacred mountains of the Navajo Nation. The opportunity came to come to NAU as the director for the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals and um, ITEP. And then about a year ago, I got the call to be an interim vice president for the Office of Native American Initiatives here on campus. And I'm very honored to work with this president and the cabinet and to continue to work not only with ITEP, I am there still in my division, but also with other programs here at the Office of Native American Initiatives. So. It's wonderful. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about ITAP, what, what the Institute is doing and, and kind of the reasons behind its formation and why that type of institute was needed at someplace like Northern Arizona University. 
what we do at ITEP is we're a workforce training organization. So if you work for a tribe, you can come to our courses and we will pay for you to get there. We will pay for your housing and we will train you for three to four days. And so you take that knowledge back and you apply it to your own sovereign laws, policies, and um, cultural protocols. We don't dictate what the tribes do. We, we give them the information that they need to develop their own programs. And when we say listen, I would say because we have so many evaluation programs for every course and every program, we get direct constructive feedback right away. So if they don't think a course is applicable or they say, you know, we're moving into this direction. So that will come up in an evaluation that will go to our advisory committee. We have six or seven advisory committees that also help us understand where tribes are. So it's a, it's a thorough process, it's well vetted. Once a curriculum program comes out, it's been well vetted by not only participants, advisory committee, and then our own internal review as well. Very cool. And so, you know, I would love to hear then within your newer position, you know, you talked about that you and the president of the university are kind of sharing goals and visions for the future for, you know, Native students and initiatives like ITEP within the university system. I'd love to hear more about what those visions are and where the needs that you see are and kind of what what pathways are being implemented to solve them. Great. That's a great question. Thank you. I met President Cruz Rivera early March last year, right about this time last year. And his first question to me <laughs> was, so Anne-Marie, how are we going to decolonize NAU? And I've never heard an administrator say anything like that before. So I quickly turned all my talking points into, okay, we're, we're, I don't have to explain what colonization is. So I knew a lot of people on campus, but understanding their needs was a different issue. And so really learning how to address those issues in real time, developing what I call an open listening session. And that really was motivated and pushed along by the new strategic roadmap which was the strategic plan. And so we held many listening sessions. I think we held five or six listening sessions with different categories of folks, the students, the faculty, the staff, the community and the alumni. And so we really got to hear from them exactly what we needed, they're concerned with. So I have that list. So that's, uh, you know, that's my blueprint for what I need to move forward on. Some of them are not easy they're really big institutional changes. So to, to go back to that conversation of decolonization, so we've then taken, yes, there's a colonization component, but then we moved it into a new term, which is now indigenization. It's an institutional change as opposed to just a program change. So it's been a lot of good work. I'm really excited to work with not only the president, but his cabinet, and they're very supportive and everyone's really in the in a new frame of mind, thinking about new ideas. And I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, that works essential though. It's really exciting to hear 
all of the support and momentum in that direction. And I know you were a part of crafting the guidelines for the use of traditional knowledge and climate change initiatives. And I would love to hear a little bit about those guidelines and yeah, yeah, what those look like. Yeah, so let me just go back a little bit about the guidelines. It started in 2014 when myself and Dr. Gary Morishima from the Quinault Nation up in Washington were selected to be on a federal advisory committee. It was the first climate change advisory committee under President Obama and then under Secretary Jewell, Department of Interior. And it was called the National Climate Change and Natural Resource Advisory Committee. In that advisory committee, we went and got 22 of our friends in the field who have been working on it. And this is pretty pretty new still. So then we wrote it and we went through peer review, public comment period, brought it back up to the committee. The committee approved it. And right before the administration changed, it was approved by Secretary Jewell. So any of those issues that were involved around traditional knowledge couldn't be ignored anymore. Now we had a set of guidelines. So the guidelines, um, was interesting in that many of us had worked in the UN. So the principles from the United Nations weren't really seen in federal policy. So one principle of engagement was free and prior informed consent, which is a UN principle. Uh, Free from duress, free from coercion, free from ill treatment. When you're developing any of your initiatives with indigenous peoples prior, being in the design phase as opposed to being a this really happens in research, being in a design phase where you're actually being asked what kinds of research and what kinds of questions need to be asked for your community, as opposed to being told, we have this research project, we got it funded, can you be a part of it? So prior is really important. Informed is for, at least for traditional knowledges, it's looking at everyone who's part of the project, understand the risks and benefits behind uh, the project. This is really important for traditional knowledge holders who are your mostly your medicine people, your medicine men, your medicine women, letting them know that the information that they are sharing could potentially be a public information. So all of them have to understand it. and They all have to be formed and they all have approved the process. So the last one is tribes have to consent to the information that's going to be used, whether it's traditional knowledge, whether it's sacred sites, whether it's sacred intellectual property mechanisms, like how do you process a plant to be used as medicine? That's that's all intellectual property. And so a tribe may, or indigenous peoples may say yes to, there's always certain levels of programming or research. They may have consent for one section, but not consent for the others. So all that has to be really drawn out in a way that everyone understands it. Not only the consent phase, but also the arbitration phase. You know, those are just the foundation of working with a tribe or indigenous peoples when it comes to traditional knowledge. But I think it's a foundation for how you work with tribes in general. <laughs> That's it in a nutshell. You know, then now the Biden administration has now executive order to respect um, traditional knowledge and they've just developed a federal advisory committee. They're looking at how to implement traditional knowledges throughout all the federal agencies and they're going out for a consultation right now. 
I just did a climate teach program for World Climate Teach Day. You know, climate change is hard, hard to talk about, hard to be in the field, hard to be in front line dealing with, because you're dealing with trauma. You're dealing with people losing their way of life, scared about different issues. So you're, and you're having to teach them that what this means, this, this whole concept with climate change is, and it's not an easy concept to put your head around. I was at a training, a tribal training camp up in Montana mostly with frontliners. This was before the pandemic, of course. So frontliners meant a different thing back then. Climate change instructors, folks dealing with adaptation planning. So I opened the floor up. I said, you know, how are we feeling? You know, are we stressed? Are we worried? And so many of them, it was the first time someone asked them how they were doing. So when I train now, I always bring this up at the end to make sure that you have a pulse on yourself and you have a pulse on your colleagues around you families who are in this field. If you notice that things are changing, you know, it's up to you to say what's going on and how do I take care of myself? Because you can't help anyone if you, if you hurt yourselves. So for the listeners out there who are hurting, who uh, or all the supervisors <laughs> who are pushing your team a little harder than they need to be pushed, make sure that you're taking a pulse of them. Make sure that they're they have the rest they need, not only physically, but mentally as well. So that's for me, especially in the age of climate change and the age of the pandemic, there's a lot of hard things that we have to think about and work on and making sure that we have alliances with one another and are kind and working together as much as possible is important for me to convey because I, I know how hard it is. And I know I was tired at one time. I was tired of talking about it all the time. In my traditional way, you know, I have ways of taking care of myself and I have ways to heal or feel healing in a way that's important. So really want to express that as well to all the folks out there listening. <laughs> you raised some really excellent points that, you know, it was hard to, from your information online, it's hard to see where your passion is. And I see now a lot of your passion is thinking about climate change. So I would like to dive a little bit more in yeah. there and talk about, you know, what you're, you've been seeing within tribal or non-tribal communities, you know, related to your work around climate change and preparing for yeah. the future. I think when we first started, you know, um, the climate change program at ITEP started with Sue Watkins, now Rose, but Sue was instrumental in getting the program started. And then it turned over to Nikki Cooley and Karen Cazetto, who are the co-managers for that program. So the work that they've been doing, you know, I've just been watching them and just like amazed, <laughs> like, oh my gosh. But I would say that for all of ITIP staff, you know, they've been really, everyone's collectively working together. But in the climate change arena, one of the things I think about is how we're supporting tribes. We went from adaptation planning and where we're seeing that a lot of adaptation plans were not being completed. And we were saying, why is it not being completed? And so then we developed cohorts so that teams of tribal professionals could work together and complete them together. And so what I see moving forward is really trying to open the conversation. You know, we put together at ITIP, Dara Marks, Marks Moreno, no longer with ITIP, but incredible writer, helped us put together the status of tribes and climate change report. And that came about from many conversations I was having with the federal government. And they would say, well, what, what do tribes want? How do they want to resolve the problem? And so there was no real 
the adaptation plans were coming, but they weren't coming quick enough and they weren't um, consolidated. And so I talked to the team about doing this report and it's, it's similar to the National Tribal Air Association, another group we work with. They have the status of tribes and air report, star report. So we took that as an example and we applied it to climate change, similar but different in some ways. Then we got together authors. We have 99 authors, 100 authors almost. And then we had the difference was we went out and got narratives from tribes. We asked them, what are you doing on the ground? What's working? What's not working? What would you recommend? And so that laid the foundation for what's coming up next, and that's the National Climate Assessment 5. It's really, for me, it was a way to gather information from the tribes, from their perspective, with their permission, and put it forward and say, these are the recommendations we need to do. If we could do that more often, I feel like the federal government would understand, the states would understand, key partners would understand, okay, this is where they want to go from their perspective. And and just being that voice or that avenue to express that is key for me because I that's what I want tribes to understand is that I wouldn't want to speak on their behalf. I want them to put forward their ideas and their their good work. There's a lot of good work going on out there on shoestring budgets, but it's it's being done and it's being done with recognition of their traditional knowledge, their sovereignty, their laws, and that's probably and then also thinking just as in my teachings, thinking seven generations ahead, what are we doing for them? And those are all concepts that are really infused in all of that information. That's just a great addition to all of it to just kind of tie all of this together. I just mentioned the seven generation concept. So the seven generation concept comes from Oklala Lakota people in the Plains area. My son is and Lakota. So it comes from his people's, his father's teachings. And it was um, a time when a holy man named Black Elk lived on the earth in the 1800s. And he had a vision where for six generations, our, our people, the indigenous people would suffer greatly. But then he said in the seventh generation, there would come a seventh generation that would rise up to heal the broken hoop of life all my understanding and all the teachings that i'm hearing is that we're in that seventh generation now and that my son's generation is the ones that were chosen and i feel like it's not just our indigenous peoples if you look around the world and you look at just how vocal our youth are today they're not waiting for laws to be changed they're not waiting for policies or political figures, they're just, they're out there saying, we, we want change today. And so knowing, and for my responsibility as my son's mother and being on this campus with all seventh generation students, it's my responsibility to let them know that this is the vision and this is the gift that they have, you know, and it may not, it may not sink in, but at the same time, I feel like that's their hope and that they're our hope. And so I look forward to seeing what this generation will do. They're really, really amazing, you know, in so many different ways. So I look forward to seeing working with them and seeing it grow around the world. <laughs> so I leave you with that. Thank you so much. 
It's an essential point, and I really appreciate you raising it. Uh, it's definitely true. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for taking You're the welcome. time. You're yeah, welcome. Really fantastic um, to talk to you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.